Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Dr. Shorik Banerjee. Shorik is a lecturer at Seattle University in the Albers School of Business and Economics. Shorik, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me to your show, Aina. It is my pleasure to be here. So I'm really happy to have Shorik here. We were both grad students together at the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, Shorik graduated this past year, and he's now working at Seattle University. And I've had several in-depth conversations with him in our grad office about how I don't think I'm going to make it through this program. Uh, So I know Shorik on a uh, very personal level, and we were also together at the Southern Economic Association Conference in November of 2021, and we were having drinks and we're talking about being on the job market. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, we should have a conversation on the pod about being on the job market. So today we're talking about your experience, not only being on the job market, but as an international student on the job market. Um, But before we get into that, first, tell me about your background in economics. Sure. Currently, I'm a lecturer of economics, as you said, in the Albert School of Business and Economics of uh, Seattle University. I completed my PhD in economics uh, from University of Nevada, Reno. I also have a Master of Science as well as a Bachelor of Science degree in economics from the University of Calcutta. I'm from India, so it's from University of Calcutta in Kolkata, India. Talking about my research, my primary research interests actually lie in the fields of, broadly in the fields of financial economics, open economy, macroeconomics, financial crisis, et cetera. I've also done some work in resource economics. My teaching interests are primarily in the fields of, uh, I would say, introductory and intermediate uh, macroeconomics, uh, courses in macroeconomics and money and banking at the undergraduate level. In the future, I'm also interested in teaching graduate-level macroeconomics courses, but we'll see what happens uh, regarding that. So when you were on the job market, and confirm with me, you were on the job market during the period of uh, fall 2020, spring 2021, is that correct? That's correct. So when you were on the job market, you know, I've heard from a lot of other of my fellow grad students that it's a pretty intense time, you're consistently applying for applications, you're working on finishing up your third chapter, you are presumably already done with your job market paper at that point. So tell me, what was your daily routine when you were on the job market? um, And for how long did you have to maintain this routine? And when did you officially stop applying for jobs? It was a pretty hectic routine. Um, So um, I am a night owl. I like to go to bed late. So that's the reason why probably uh, I my day didn't start early, but there were a bunch of things on my plate at that point of time. For example, I was applying for jobs. I was doing my research. Uh, Yes, of course, I was submitting papers at that point of time. My job market paper was already done, uh, but I was still trying to uh, submit it to journals at that point. And uh, also I was teaching a couple of courses at that point of time as a primary instructor of record uh, in the Department of Economics of University of Nevada, Reno. 
So uh, back then, my day would usually begin at nine or ten with some coffee, quick breakfast, and news, and I would usually read The Economist and The New York Times, mainly to find out potential economic stories which I could integrate into my curriculum. Um, and then I would switch to prepping for my lectures some days, uh, which were assigned to this for this purpose, that is for prepping for lectures. The other days I would switch to research. Then towards the end of the day would be the time when I would actually switch to applying for the job market. Uh, and then usually I would like to end the day with a chapter of a book, which I'm reading at any particular point of time for fun. So yeah, uh, usually my hours would be long technically because I was assigning it over a bunch of different things. So I would say I was working anytime between 10 to 12 hours every day and uh, maybe around 70 to 80 hours a week, I would say. Yeah, it's a pretty good estimate, uh, very similar to what I've heard from many other people. Um, so my next question for you is, what is your caffeine of choice and why? And the reason why I ask this is because personally, I believe that an individual's caffeine choice tells us a lot about their personality. For example, mine is green tea. I don't drink any coffee. I drink green tea straight hot every day because I... I'm a very non-creative person and I do a lot of yoga and I don't do coffee like many other people who are far more creative and hardcore than I am, but that's just my personal belief. So I just want to get from you. So listeners can get an idea of your personality. What is your choice of caffeine? Firstly, I don't think that there is a strong correlation between being creative and drinking coffee. I don't know if there is any. <laughs> there is no research to actually support that, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I um, I uh, prefer uh, black coffee in the morning, which is very strong usually. It is because of my personal preference, technically, and uh, the bitter taste somehow helps me stay focused. And uh, the strength of my coffee helps me to remain alert. So, um, and it is very essential, as you already know, I know that it is very essential when you're in this profession to stay alert because your brain is probably functioning all the time during the day or you're managing a course as you're teaching it or you're doing research or something. So I think that coffee is my caffeine of choice because of that reason. <laughs> so that's funny that you say that, that you always have to be alert. That's very, very true. All grad students know this, that you always have to be on it, um, especially as a grad student. And so this leads me into my next question. Um, and one more thing on the coffee, because we're not done with the caffeine topic, is that my dad makes espresso twice a day. And I cannot understand how an individual has that much caffeine throughout the day. I have had coffee maybe a handful of times in my life. And each time I get heart palpitations and massive anxiety. I don't know how people do it. This is why the only thing I can drink is green tea. Um, so that's a fun fact. But okay, moving on to our next question. Um, what was the best thing that you did while you were a grad student that aided in your professional development that you would also recommend to other grad students? 
firstly, regarding your comment about uh, your dad uh, making espresso a couple of times a day, I do it like three to four times a day. So it's usually like three to four cups of coffee a day. So uh, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> it's just I think everybody's personal preference and body type. But yeah, I mean, that's how it is. But uh, coming to your question. It is a broad question because I think the best thing is a mix of many things that you do as a graduate student, especially a PhD student, which helps in your professional development. So as you very well know that as a graduate student, you are expected to do a variety of things, right? For example, you will be designing courses, most probably if you are working as a primary instructor of record. You will be teaching, grading, responding to student concerns. You will be doing research. You'll be presenting your research in seminars and conferences, developing writing and quantitative skills as you are doing it. You are expected to know also the submission and publication process. Also, I was involved in a lot of student-related services, like through the Graduate Student Association. I was also the founder and president of an organization for the graduate students in the Department of Economics. Broadly, I think what helped me out at that point was, um, which aided my professional development the most was being open to new possibilities. Like I kept myself open to new possibilities, challenges, and I went out of my comfort zone all the time to try new things and try to excel in it. And it was one of the best things that I did as a graduate student to aid in my professional development. And uh, what I mean by that is that I never restricted myself to doing the basic minimum. I always tried to do something beyond, which was uh, both a good thing, I would say, as well as a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Tell me why. Why is it a bad thing? Uh, bad thing because you lose out on your sleep and uh, probably uh, 24 hours is not enough at times to actually... Uh, finish all the work and there's always something on your plate and yes you might end up with some anxiety uh, good thing because you are doing a lot of things you're showing your flexibility and you are showing that you can uh, actually manage a lot of things on your plate and simultaneously your resume is actually getting longer at that point uh, which is a good thing in the job market to have <laughs> funny thing about anxiety. I have anxiety all of the days, but on Mondays, I have extra anxiety. And now that I'm in this program three years in, I have even more anxiety than when I started. So everybody gets anxiety. Um, so I want to talk to you about uh, conferences. You briefly mentioned it. Um, so I just went to my first conference in November 2021 in Texas, and I had a great time. I made a ton of good contacts. It was a great networking opportunity. Why are research conferences a good time investment for grad students? How early on should grad students start applying for conferences? I went to my first conference in my third year because I'm currently in my third year. And then another question, some programs don't fund grad students for travel. So why are these conferences a good money investment? Because some grad students are investing their personal money in travel funds. I want to hear from you. Absolutely, Anna. I think that even if you do not get funding for attending any research conference, I think it is a great idea for graduate students to actually invest some of their own personal funds to go and present in research conferences. And I also believe that attending research conferences, I think, must be a requirement in PhD programs for graduate students, especially PhD students, because 
there are a variety of reasons. Uh, like the first thing which comes to mind is that it helps a graduate student, especially a PhD student to become a better presenter. Like uh, for your research, you might be working on a very specific research field and other researchers working in other research fields might not be familiar with the background, the significance or literature of the field you are working on. It also becomes particularly more difficult when you are working on a theoretical paper, which was my case. <laughs> in such a case, you have to be able to present your work like to a wider group of audience in a non-technical manner and in an interest interesting way within a certain period of time, which is very challenging. Like presenting in conferences helped me at least uh, to develop this, these skills immensely. And they were very valuable in the job market because during your job talk in the second round of the interview, you might be presenting your work to a group of faculty from the department of a university, which could be a potential employer. And none of them might be thoroughly familiar with your particular field of research. So at that point of time, you will be required to sell your research in a way, quote unquote, sell your research and uh, like really make them understand that why your research is significant. Second thing which comes to mind is that going to research conferences helps graduate students, especially PhD students to actually network and collaborate with faculty and researchers from other institutions, which has positive spillover, spillover effects even when they are in the job market because they become more recognizable faces. At the same point of time, finally, you get like the purpose of going to the research conference, which is one of the biggest purposes that you get useful comments and feedback on your research. So you can identify flaws and potential drawbacks early, identify and consider and correct them which also increases like the quality of your work and increases your chances of getting your papers published in better journals. So all of these reasons combined together it actually helps in all these aspects, which I just mentioned. Yeah, I think the presenting skills are really, really important to sharpen and research conferences are a great way to do that. Another thing about conferences that I love personally is I really like listening to other people's research ideas and papers because that gets my uh, non-creative creative juices flowing and helps me think of more ideas. Um, so I think that's a plus. Um, so now getting into the specific job market application process on a scale of one to 10, how time intensive was this process? 10 being very time consuming. Uh, but going off on your last comment, I absolutely uh, did not mention that. And I absolutely agree with you, Anna, that yeah, going to research conferences actually helps you also in this manner that you can listen to other people presenting their research, which would actually potentially it would help you with your own skills and also uh, give you new research ideas probably. So that's also one of the things which should have come to my mind, but yeah, that's, uh, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, coming to your question that how time intensive the job market process was, the application process in the job market was, it was time intensive. <laughs> I would call it a nine, close to a full-time job for two to three months. October to December for the first round because each application requires a lot of documents apart from the CV. For example, you will require a cover letter, diversity statement, research statement, job market paper. Let's see then there's teaching statement, 
Um, then there is evidence of teaching effectiveness, etc. So creating all these documents and then tailoring each one of them to the needs of each job posting usually takes a lot of time as you're making each application. So it also entails most of the times creating individual job application profiles for most of the job postings. Then if I would say that if you are in the job market for the first time, it easily takes around 45 minutes to an hour to apply for each academic job if you are doing it seriously. And uh, if you're applying to 100 to more than 100 jobs to maximize your chances of getting employed, it can easily take up like 40 hours a week, um, uh, especially during a week market because of COVID-19, because you will be constantly revising your work and uh, your statements, your cover letter and et cetera. And that, yeah, it takes a lot of time to do it. So what would you recommend for good prep work uh, to grad students who are about to go in the job market? What should they do now? I would say at this point that if the graduate students are going to the market, the first thing they need to do is uh, they need to be prepared. Uh, start Like I don't know about the job market right now because the job market right now is already, the first round is already done uh, for this year. Uh, but next year, the people who are going to the job market next year, I would strongly suggest that begin early, start designing your website early. Uh, I would say that start writing up your format for your teaching philosophy very early. Also at the same point of time, um, your cover letter and your CV, start thinking about them super early and try to design them in a way so that they're easily readable and they have a very good formatting so that any person who's looking at them can easily understand it very easily. Work on your uh, skills to get an information uh, to somebody through your writing really easily. Work on your writing really well so that you can get any information to your potential employer uh, really quickly within a few words. Uh, and then I would say that also prepare for mock interviews because those actually help me a lot. Like mock interviews, talk to your department and see if your professors or your placement directors can actually help you with mock interviews to prepare for the job market. They will give you a basic idea of what kind of questions you would expect and also take out some of the anxiety out of the equation. So then you will be more confident in order to um, go ahead and uh, face those interviews uh, so that you can at least uh, be less anxious and you can organize your thoughts better before you actually start answering those questions. I think those mock interviews are a very good idea. Um, fun fact, when I used to do debate, I did debate uh, throughout middle school, high school, college for a long time, and we always did mock debates. That was the best way to train people, and it absolutely helps. So I think mock interviews are a great idea. If you could do those even the summer before you go on the job market, it sounds like that would be a good use of your time. So my next question this is getting more into our unexpected topic of anxiety and mental health on this podcast. Um, on a scale of one to 10, how stressful was the job market application process mentally? 10 being very stressful. Well, that's a good question. And very this market, the market where when I was in the job market uh, that year, the market was pretty stressful. The reason was COVID-19 and it was an exceptionally different kind of a market. And 
because of that reason and my specific interest in the academic job market as an international student and the related sponsorship requirements which entailed uh, which came along with that i would say it was a 10 i mean it was extremely stressful so at this point my therapist would chime in and say okay let's lean into this why are we feeling this way is this is this i'm not therapizing you today but is this speaking to a need or a boundary and she would go into all these things so this is how my therapist talks about stress <laughs> with me we we rate things from a one to ten so today is an impromptu therapy session um so i want to dive a little deeper into something you just brought up about being an international student on the job market what kind of administrative things did you have to go through that a domestic student would not have to go through talk about the sponsorship what extra obstacles do you face that a domestic student does not face okay i'll take some time to answer this question because i think this is a very good question which you asked me and i think that this question is really relevant for international students specifically in the job market because many of them don't know what the different requirements are and how they are different in many aspects when you are in the job market from domestic students right so um job market for international students is more limited than the domestic students and I would say it's particularly because of the sponsorship requirements. And international student usually requires a potential employer to agree to sponsor their work visa or H-1B visa, which is also known as an H-1B visa, in order to secure their legal status to work in the US. Um, also, additionally, the work that they do must be related to their field of study and the issuance of H-1B visa is actually contingent upon this. The employer needs to be able to prove that the work that the international student will be doing as an employee is strongly related to their field of study at the graduate level and the skills that they learn during their graduate studies. Like usually many private company corporations and federal and state level jobs require the job candidates to already have a work visa, preferably or a permanent residency that is a green card or citizenship because they are not willing to sponsor. Now, the next question which I would ask is that why are they not willing to sponsor? Now, there are various, various reasons which are there behind why they might not be willing to sponsor H-1B. It could be that they're not willing to do it because <clears throat> you know, sponsoring H-1Bs usually require additional costs in the form of extra effort on the company's part to collect data. They have to work with lawyers, they have to work with the government, they have to manage the timing. There are legal costs, filing fees. There are several other compliance and audit issues because when you're sponsoring, uh, when you're a sponsoring employer, then in that case, you must you must comply with additional laws and regulations. They have to maintain a public access file. They are subject to audit by Department of Homeland Security and Department of Labor. So the expectations and the length of the visa, which is there for H-1B visas, they're usually also, so the H-1B visas are usually just valid for six years. So first they're valid for the first three years, and then there is an additional extension of three years. Then the employee, then the international student who becomes the employee will potentially ask for a green card sponsorship, which is another tenuous process for the company. So also H-1B visas are restrictive now, um, specifically, and I think this is a very important thing for international students to understand, because many of them don't understand the difference. 
Now, according to the United States Customs and Immigration Services, uh, in 2020, the rule was that the regular H-1B visa caps, which are there, there are 65,000 petitions which are made by foreign workers and which are, there's a cap of 65,000 uh, to foreign workers who have the required skills and qualifications. Additional 20,000, that is a total of 85,000 petitions are allotted, but the additional 20,000 20, are allotted to individuals who have advanced degrees at a master's level or beyond. However, in some cases, they need to understand, like if you're going to the academic job market, international students, they have this, uh, if you have an advanced degree, if you're an international student and you're going to the academic job market, you have some specific advantages because H-1B applications can be filed without going through the H-1B cap. That means you do not need to go through the lottery process like uh, the ones uh, who are applying through the corporate line. So there are several exceptions. Like if you're working in a higher education institution, it is subject to an exemption, uh, exemption category in this particular case. So the moment you apply for an H-1, your potential employer or your employer applies for your H-1B, it will get processed in an academic institution. Within, and with premium processing, it, it's within 15 days. But even then, here's what I found when I was in the job market last year is that many academic institutions also do not want to sponsor visas for international job candidates, which makes the market very, very limited for us. And if you're looking at the international job market, like outside the borders of the United States, for example, if you're looking at Canada or Europe, even then preference is given to citizens first, which is a very understandable um, thing that they will be giving preference to the citizens first. And uh, again, even during the job market application, a question which will pop up is, do you require sponsorship now or in the future to work legally in the United States? And uh, it has been said and it has been found, I think, in one of in some of the articles which I read. And uh, I found that if you answer yes to that, that you do require sponsorship now or in the future to work legally in the United States, regardless of your experience or qualifications, your application might be kicked out of the system automatically if the institution is not looking forward to sponsoring visas for work visas for international students. Now, the market becomes uh, more limited for international students when there is a negative macroeconomic shock, right? Like at this point, there is COVID-19 and it becomes incredibly stressful and un uncertain. I was lucky enough to get a job in this market. So I am really grateful for that. I remember having a conversation with um, our fellow, fellow grad student, Olga. We both know her. And Olga was incredibly stressed out on the job market. Uh, she went on the job market in fall 2019, spring. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Fall 2020, spring 2021. And she, I remember having dinner with her and she was like, I am not sure if I'm going to get a job when this thing is done because academic institutions are so restrictive on hiring right now. I don't know how this is going to end. And I was so nervous for her. And um, so you bring up a lot of good points. Uh, so what it all sounds like to me is the job market is already stressful. And then being an international, having that international status makes it 10 times more stressful because you Absolutely. have all of this paperwork to get through. And uh, something I want to highlight that you talked about is that 
on the supply side dynamics, right? We're all economists here on the supply side <laughs> dynamics. <laughs> this is how I talk to my uh, 102 students, supply side dynamics. Um, for, <laughs> for employers, academic institutions, they have to do so much work in terms of administrative and legal processes to bring on an international job market candidate. So it's good as when you're going on the job market to remember what your employer is going through to bring you onto the team and like remember that kind of perspective. Um, and I, you know, I read an article and I want to get your perspective on it. I read an article. Uh, it was an old article from like years ago, a long time ago uh, from Inside Higher Ed about the challenges of being uh, on the job market uh, and being an international student. And he, the author brought up an interesting note about accents and your voice accent and how some accents may uh, pose or may introduce, um, I should use the word elicit curiosity from your listeners versus some accents may elicit uh, questioning for the fluency of your English. And of course, this is due to prejudice biases. But I want to ask you, did you experience any of this on the job market? Were you ever nervous about um, your accent being a hindrance? Did you feel any of this like self-consciousness or anxiety going on the job market, knowing that you have an accent? That's an interesting point. I'm not aware of this article. So please send it to me any point of time when you have it. Yeah, yeah I'll send it over. <laughs> Yeah. Um, personally, I would say that, yes, I do have an accent. And uh, yeah, I have had to work on my accent over time. The reason is that when I first started teaching on my course evaluations, there were uh, comments by my students regarding my accent and that they could not understand me many po- at many points of time. So that was a valid thing. I took it as a part of my profession and I worked on it. And now hopefully I'm doing a better job because my course evaluations are good. So um, I am not quite sure if there are any extra obstacles which I faced as an international student of color, like of color, I don't know, uh, rather than domestic white students. Uh, I find everybody very, I found at least in the academic job market, I found everybody very welcoming, very encouraging. And uh, there was nothing specifically, and I have not looked at the data or anything at this point that I can make a thorough comment on this. But personally, from a personal perspective, I don't think that I faced any form of discrimination or anything of that sort or any kind of prejudice, which I noticed uh, as I was going through this process. Everybody has been very supportive, even in my department at University of Nevada, Reno. Everybody has been very supportive uh, from uh, all the other universities. All the interviewers who were there, they have been very encouraging and they have also uh, listened to me, well, my perspectives during the interviews really well. They have provided, at times, they have also provided their own perspectives on certain issues. Uh, so I was, I think, fortunate in this particular field, I don't know, but uh, fortunately, I would also like to add to this that I don't know about international students, but U.S. universities are making a strong effort to increase diversity of faculty, staff, and students in their campuses. I'm very happy about it. So minorities, people of color and women are actually more encouraged to apply for jobs, especially in this discipline of economics. It has historically, it has had this reputation that there is a 
underrepresentation of minorities, people of color and women in this discipline. It, it is statistically shown. So I believe that great job in that manner because it's happening. And I think my employer, Seattle University is doing a great job in this particular uh, thing. And University of Nevada, Reno also is doing a great job attracting people from diverse backgrounds and diverse colors. And it is amazing to work in such a work environment. It's good to hear that you had a good experience on the job market in that perspective. I want to go back to something really quick. Uh, Shurik was talking about his uh, teaching reviews, and he's being very humble because Shurik is an excellent instructor, and we were very sad to see him go because he had such great reviews, and I've gotten several of my teaching ideas from him. So he's being humble today. Um, so I just want to you know, <laughs> talk about how good of an instructor he is. So now I want to move on to, on a scale of one to 10, how important do you think public speaking and eloquence and presentation skills are for a job market candidate in the process, 10 being very important? Firstly, thank you very much, Jaina, for commenting on my teaching. And uh, thank you so much for the good comments. Absolutely. uh... And they were all true. <laughs> Hopefully, I don't know. <laughs> Just hoping to get better every day. <laughs> okay, so uh, coming to communication skills in the job market, I think that they are very, very. I cannot emphasize on this. I could probably go ahead and give a twenty out of ten on this particular, um, in this particular metric, uh, because I think that the ability to present and to uh, present your work and your teaching ideas in a very interactive format within a short period of time to your potential employers is a very, very important skill for you to have because your interviewers are limited by time and they're interviewing probably 20 or 25 people at the the same time and they have to absorb all that information and uh, they also have limited time to do so. So because of this reason, it becomes increasingly more important for you to be able to be on their side by trying to understand their perspective and to be able to communicate effectively to them. And coming to my teaching part at this point, I recently introduced a very, very interesting thing in my classes. uh, And uh, it is known as three minute presentations. So that means that all my students, they're divided into like 10 different groups and uh, they usually have to work on a term paper during their uh, course and they choose their topic and they have three minutes. Once they choose a topic, they have three minutes and one slide to explain that what their topic, why did they choose this topic and why their topic is significant. And they have just one slide and three minutes to do it. And I think it definitely increases their communication skills and I invite people from other departments uh, in order to come invite faculty from other departments to come and grade them or to judge them in that. The reason is that it helps them to build the skill to explain their topic in a non-technical manner to a non-specialist audience. So it's a very important skill to have. I really like that idea of giving three-minute presentations. I'm teaching statistics in this upcoming semester, and I'm trying to think of a way to like make it more dynamic and social because statistics is uh, typically an unliked topic by undergraduates. Um, it's difficult to teach at times. Uh, so I really like that idea of giving three-minute presentations. I think it helps students really sharpen their presentation skills. Um, so that's interesting that you say that you would give this a 20 out of 10 in terms of how important it is on the job market to be able to present and communicate effectively. 
So that's good to note for everybody listening. Your presentation skills need to be on point. If you were to go through the entire job market process again, what would you do differently? So I would be uh, tailoring my application packages more towards a specific job that I'm applying for. I think that's something which I did not do very well uh, in my job market when I was in the job market. That is, I I was running out of time many times. And what I did was I was uh, having a general format for the cover letter, the teaching philosophy, the diversity statement, etc. And then... I did not actually find the time rather at that point to go ahead and to tailor each one of those materials in my application package to the specific job that I was applying for because different job postings have different kind of job descriptions and they're looking for different kinds of candidates with different kind of mix of skills. So I think that I would tailor them more towards each application that I'm making. And also I would prepare more for the first round of interviews because I would be doing more research uh, on the particular institution which is interviewing me. So I would strongly suggest that students who are in the job market that you should go ahead when you get an interview call and you are uh, about to interview in the academic job market at least for the first round of interview, then in that case, it's uh, highly recommended that you know a lot about the place that you are interviewing for. So uh, if you are interviewing for university in say California, know about that university, where it is located, how many students are there in that university, what is the undergraduate and graduate student population, what is the diversity in terms of faculty and staff as well as students in the university, then know that how well that they're growing over time. Like are they growing in university can bring these things up statistically during the interview and they would know that you really, really like them and you really, really studied about them and you made an effort to actually know about them during the interview. So I think that's a great skill to have. And that is something which I would actually change about my job market experience. I think knowing your employer is such a key thing to go into an interview with. I want to ask you one more question about applying, like tailoring your job packages, your applications for each school. So did you apply to positions that were outside of your field of interest? For example, did you apply to research positions at universities that pertain to research that was not in your interest or related to your dissertation? And how did that experience go? Well, I did not get an interview call from any one of those. I did <laughs> I did apply, but I would say that that's another important skill. And thank you for mentioning that, Anna. But I think that it's important that you actually do a good job selecting the places that you are applying to. You will Otherwise, you will spend around, so the cost in this case, the marginal cost is higher than the marginal benefit in terms of <laughs> economics again. So if you are spending like 60 minutes of your time applying for a place, for applying to a job, which is requiring, uh, which, which is looking for a person or an individual who is working in a different research area, then in that case, you are just wasting that 60 minutes potentially for an application which will not get you an interview call when you could have used the same time for something more productive, maybe even work on your dissertation, right? So I would strongly recommend in this case that, yeah, 
please do not apply to places which do not have, uh, which are not looking for a job market candidate in your particular research field or research area or your teaching interests. I think it's a waste of time. My last question for you is, and I'm asking this because I have a friend actually at Seattle University, he's doing his PhD in English. And he, when he finishes, him and his wife want to move out of the country and work at uh, an institution somewhere else in Europe is where they're looking at. So I'm curious for you, why did you choose an American institution instead of uh, an institution outside of the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question. So in this case, um, there were a number of reasons behind my decision. So number one was I came here to do a PhD because it's U.S. universities usually provide you with funding when you they have the external funds to actually provide you with funding when you're doing your PhD, which was a big help because I could be independent, have my own uh, place, and also at the same point of time, lead an independent life uh, financially. While although I was, uh, you don't get paid well at all during while being a PhD student. You're like basically kind of close to poverty. But <laughs> yes, even then, we are all living <laughs> at 150 percent of the federal poverty level. Yeah, so, <laughs> yes. So that's what I'm saying. So that's the reason why I would I would say that, yeah, I was living in that situation. But at the same point of time, the funding was very, very useful, which helped me to actually complete my PhD, get an advanced degree. At the same point of time, uh, being in an American university, I believe it allowed me to focus on research, which is much better than what than the research which happens in universities in my country. Primarily because my country, the universities lack proper infrastructure due to the funds which are sanctioned by the government usually. It is not the same case out here because there are a lot of private funds which are available. I would say also I've always been interested in teaching. And I think that teaching in the United States in the US universities is more rewarding and innovative and more technology oriented rather than teaching in Indian universities. Here, the educational institutions have proper infrastructure. They have more diversity. You have multiple opportunities to get external funding for teaching purposes. That is, you can get teaching grants, you can get research grants. Also, you have more access to technology to develop active learning environments. So you can really innovate as an educator. And also there is a two-way feedback process uh, between students and instructors. So I think that, which was not there, at least when I was an undergraduate student in my, in, back in India, when I was uh, in an Indian institution doing my undergraduate studies. So I think that this actually helps in uh, you to become an innovative educator as you are moving forward and a better teacher. And also at the same point of time, develop a personal interpersonal relationship with students, which is, I think it is very, very important for your professional as well as personal growth. And thirdly, my standard of living, I think is much higher in America as a, as a teacher out here rather than what it would have been back in India. That's what I believe. So, and there is more, financial as well as social independence in the market and the society out here, as I can perceive uh, being an international uh, immigrant in this particular country. And everybody is amazingly nice and uh, people are really nice and I uh, everybody is helpful. And uh, I think that it allows me to grow as an individual. So it's really great to be here. 
And lastly, yeah, you get invited to great podcasts such as this to talk about your experiences, right? So, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm taking that as a compliment. You think it's yeah. a great podcast? <laughs> so that's the reason why uh, I think it pays off. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. So today, my guest has been Dr. Shorik Banerjee. Shorik, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely, Anna. Thank you so much for all your great questions and for having me here. It was a pleasure. A wonderful morning. And this weekend will be great because of that. <laughs> this is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.